Thank you so much for joining The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. I am your host, Sharon Feckety. I'm also the author of The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. I'm so glad that you're here today. This is a space that you're going to hear a lot of stories about recovery, addiction, men and women that have suffered from anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, trauma. We're going to have professionals on here as well. So I hope that it's not just this show that you listen to, but you go back and listen to the many other shows and the many other stories. And please subscribe and pass it on to somebody that you know that might be struggling and feel like they're alone. None of us are alone on this broken road to mental health. And I'm so glad that you're here. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everybody. Well, thank you for joining the broken road to mental health and life and in business. And today, this is my recording voice, Arlena. I don't know where it came from, but you know, fabulous. (laughs) Today, we have speaker, author, coach, and podcaster, Arlena Allen. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you again. I'm excited to talk with you. So I had the great honor of being a guest on the uh, One Day at a Time Recovery Podcast. And I loved our conversation for many reasons, but one big one is that you and I are both sober the same amount of time. (laughs) How crazy is that? It is kind of crazy. Like we don't, years. Yeah. we don't get to meet weirdos like us <laughs> too often, right? Yeah, it's true. And we're not 95. <laughs> we're a lot yeah. younger than that. <laughs> yeah, we look so, fabulous. yeah, but it is, it's a, a blessing, you know, because we have grown up with a design for living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. So, um, you are a recovery coach. You, um, you heal root cause, not just the symptoms. You have a lot of exciting things going on that we'll wait till the end to talk about. Um, so I would like to introduce you more to the audience by just telling them how you got to where you are today, you know, after the birth canal, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> don't start from where I was born. Well, that always you makes me hear, Right. We're in a meeting and we hear, I was born shit. Here Checking out. <laughs> I can't wait for the timer you. to go off. Right. Right. Is there a bell in this meeting? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The last meeting I did hear that, that the one that I was sharing with you before you hit record, before yeah. I hit record, yeah. um, she spoke and then the, the woman got up and she goes, we have a nice way of closing. There was no time, no time for the promises. There was no time for anything. It was just like, wow, you spoke a full hour. Thank you. Wow. That's amazing. I Isn't can, it? Uh, yeah. I'll get up and leave. I have, I, I find it so disrespectful to hold the meeting hostage. It was, I did. I felt like a hostage. Thank you. Yeah. I didn't close with everybody. I did walk out. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. So Arlena, the stage is yours. Please tell the people how you got to where you are today with the beautiful background. You have this lovely kind of soothing lavender pinkish looking motif. I love it. Yeah. It's a peony, the pink peony in the background. Listen, I'll keep it. I'll keep it kind of tight because I think we all, it doesn't take long to sort of get the gist. Um, And what I will say about the childhood part is that there were two significant events in my childhood that sort of shaped who I am today. One was that my parents divorced when I was about seven years old. And the other is that I was sexually abused by a neighbor. Those two events. Yeah. I'm really sorry. Oh, thank you. It's not uncommon. You know, (laughs) you hear that um, in the mainstream, like in, in the population at large, one out of four women have been sexually assaulted. And I would argue that in the rooms of recovery, the, the statistic is reversed. Right. Like, and and as a matter of fact, most women in recovery have had some sort of sexual um, assault, abuse in their story. Yes. Because I mean, quite frankly, we put ourselves in very dangerous situations when we choose to pick up the drink or drug or whatever, that uh, we lose the ability to choose what happens to us sometimes. Right. But things that happen to us are um, at the core instigated by our own behavior. Right. So I, you know, 
I don't take responsibility for what happened to me when I was a little girl. Cause I was like five years old when that stuff happens, but I do take responsibility for my choices of, um, my part. I don't take full responsibility, but I do take responsibility for my part. Um, but anyway, those two events shaped who I thought I was mm. my capable, my capabilities, what I was capable of. It shaped my identity and ultimately, and I grew up in the church with these ideas of perfectionism, right? I was confused about what, you know, I lacked the context and perspective I needed to make that environment work. Mm-hmm. Um, I took these ideals uh, that we were to strive for as the law, like that's how I was supposed to, like if it was attainable, right? Mm-hmm. These ideas of virtue and uh, are actually mental constructs, right? And the thing about a mental construct, it's like the horizon. It, ideals are something that you work towards, but like the horizon, you could work towards it. You could always walk towards the horizon and never arrive. Mm. There's no arriving at the horizon. It always moves further out. And so um, I got caught in the trap of perfectionism, comparison, and really the end result was that I thought I was bad and that I wasn't good enough. And Mm. those are sort of like my core wounds, you know, like unlovable, unworthy, wrong, broken, like fundamentally, I thought I was bad. And I used to joke around, um, about that. And it wasn't until like later in recovery that I realized that I was saying, oh, you know, my relationship with the higher power in the church and all that, you know, I had to redo, you know, how you go through that process of redoing the whole thing, right? Like reevaluating what it really means for you. And I used to say that I got away from God when I was little, because I, I just kept failing, like I wanted to be a certain way and I would was human and I would, you know, quote unquote fail. And it just made me feel bad. And I gave up at some point. I decided if I couldn't be good, I was going to be good at being bad. And mm-hmm. the, at the root of that, which is why I'm so obsessed with root cause is that the root of that was, I was bad. That was in my subconscious belief system. And so it affected what I believed I deserved in life and what I was capable of. And that's, that was my operating system. I learned years later, neuroscience calls that your default mode network. It's Hmm. your brain's operating system. And so oftentimes we know what we should be doing, but we just don't do it. It's because your brain is trying to keep you in sort of like this homeostasis. We have like this thermostat. We don't get too high. We don't get too low. We sort of live in this comfort zone. And so that's kind of the place that we operate from. So we always default back to our operating system. So that kind of set the stage for how it started. And because I had all these feelings of not good enough, it was quite a burden to carry. And I had my first drink. It was between the ages of eight and 10. I was probably around eight. My mom had gone out on a date or gone out to dinner or something. And I was left home alone with my older sister. And I thought it would be a good idea to drink some of the booze that was, it was like this dusty old bottle in the cab. I don't even know where this idea came from, <laughs> but, uh, cause I never saw my parents drink. My parents were not drinkers. My, my mm-hmm. daddy was from Kentucky from a long line of ministers and he was mm-hmm. a government guy and a Marine, but never saw him drink, uh, uber religious. And my mom you know, was born and raised in Mexico city and she was total goody two shoes. She was like, (laughs) I, you know, apple and tree. I don't know if I, I don't know why I got it. And she, I don't know what it was a thing, but um, anyway, I remember that first drink. I I was like all excited to do something naughty. Right. Mm. It was like the anticipation and the excitement of what I was going to do. And then I took the drink and it burned my lips it burned all the way down. And when it hit bottom, that warmth spread through my whole body Mm. and I felt good. And I didn't realize how bad I felt until I felt good. It was the juxtaposition of those two feelings that like burned in my psyche forever. And that was the, that was the experience that I had chased for a very long time. Right. That just the contrast between feeling really bad and then having all of that lifted, the self-consciousness, the self-loathing, the self-hatred, it was all gone. And all Mm. that was left were these good feelings. And it's not, it's not lost on me that, you know, we refer to alcohol as spirits, right? It's like, it's like, it was a return to like this spirit of goodness and Mm. carefree and relief that I felt. 
right? And then obviously I didn't become a daily drinker at age eight, but I, it started a pattern of binge drinking that carried me till I was about 25 and through a series of events that was like, I just got sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was always chronically heartbroken. Um, I, I sort of came up with this tagline that if it was in a bottle of, a, if it was in a bottle of bag or blue jeans, I was doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Anything to fill the void, <laughs> to distract me from my pain. And, right. and so that's when I landed in the rooms of 12 step, um, just to backtrack, just a tiny little bit. I had like a bottom out experience with my sister where the police were involved and I, um, assaulted her mm. and it's bad. I didn't go to jail. I should, I absolutely should have, but I had been dating a married cop. At the, of a course DUI, you were yeah. a DUI cop. Can you believe that? I never I went can. to jail. Yeah. Never went to jail. Cause I used to hand over his business card with my driver's license and they'd let me go. It was so oh crazy. I know. And I was like, when I got sober, I was like, that's the first thing that'll happen. If I ever relapse, I was terrified of relapsing mm -hmm. and they would be like, Oh, that's a yet for you. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that, that, that's kind of how I got to the place of recovery was it just, I, I, I just couldn't do it anymore is the God's honest truth that I, that bottoming out night with my sister was two years prior to getting to the rooms as we call oh, it wow. because I had that two year period during that two per year period is when I started to question my drinking mm. and it took me two years of wrestling, controlling, you know, a glass of water between drinks, mm -hmm. um, eating before I went out, taking a couple of aspirin and a glass of water before I went to sleep, um, taking a drink, not taking a drink, switching yeah. from yeah, that sounds familiar. Like we've read that before. <laughs> I did all the things when I read the Check. book. Yeah, when I read the book, I was like, "This was written in the late 1930s." And right. Like, they were reading my mind. How does that like quantum <laughs> physics in action? I was like, how does that? How does that even work? But yeah, um, that's so. I got to the rooms, and then that started my recovery journey. April 23rd of 94, when I was 25. Yeah, so I'm. I'll be 54 this month, and. I tell you, I have been on this. I have tried all the things in recovery, mm -hmm. all the therapies, healing modality. I'm a voracious reader. I have right now I have about 200 audiobooks on my phone. I'm constantly consuming yes. information because now, now I'm on this quest to pass it on to others. My mm -hmm. mission in life is to help alleviate suffering in others. It's like I was looking so hard for so long for the thing, the one thing that would make the difference in from suffering to finding peace and contentment. Mm. And at the end of the day, you know, all the things that I, you know, use are always with the end result of how can it make me feel better? You know, I, I'm no longer able to use the drugs or alcohol, but now it's how can I heal? How can I uncover that hidden wound that I've disassociated from and heal that so I can feel better. And then my instinct now, because of the way we were raised in 12 step is to pass it on. And so that's, that's what I do now as I try to pass it on. So let's talk a little bit about what it was like when you first um, came into the rooms of recovery. <laughs> Um, oh my God. I know. Right. Yeah. So what, what great fond memories. So I was 21, you were 25. We we're both young bucks. Um, <laughs> uh, for me, I remember feeling like this is horrible. <laughs> I am surrounded by old people that want me to read books that I'm not interested in. And at that time, um, there was smoking and non-smoking. Yes. Yeah. Right. We yeah. lived through that. Oh my God. Hilarious. And you know, the classroom was like so small that the smoke was like billowing everywhere. Um, I smoked too. So I was sitting in the smoking section <laughs> at the time. And I have all these vivid, you know, memories about like how it was when I came in and it's so vastly different from, you know, the journey and where I am today. So I'm curious about what it was like for you when you uh, discovered the rooms of recovery. 
Well, so the first thing that came to mind was how I was so self-centered, but Mm. incapable of self-examination. Right. Right. Uh Yeah. I was completely self-centered and, and luckily the steps have a way of addressing that, right? Mm -hmm. Like the four step for me was really profound and separating sort of deconstructing and unpacking all my baggage, right? We show up with all this baggage and the four step was definitely a way for me to unpack all that Mm -hmm. and start to, it revealed patterns of behavior and how I was affecting others. And then, and then, you know, through the guidance of others, um, I had awareness about, or ideas about how to do things different. But when I first got there, I was excited to be there. Like, wow. I I loved it. Like (laughs) there is, there is this little guy who would write welcome home. And I felt that to my soul. I was like, oh my God, I found my people. You are my people. You are my people. It's like, oh, these people get my kind of crazy and they help me discover a new normal. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, listen, I, at 25 had, I burned all my bridges. Like I really didn't have any friends left. It was, I know people get sober now, you know, and they're at midlife and they're like, they have all these friends and relationships and spouses and careers and kids and that, you know, and they have to sort of reorient all those Mm -hmm. relationships. I didn't have any. I didn't, I didn't have to do any of that. And I was in an area that had a lot of young people's meetings. Mm -hmm. And there was this one meeting, there's one group called Saturday night live. And it had like this reputation of being, um, kind of crazy and wild. And I was like, uh, where is it? (laughs) How how fast can I get there? Um, and that's where all the boys were. And so I was like, I used to dress up to go to meetings and, um, try to look good and oppress the boys. I actually met my husband when I was five months. Now old. we wear pajamas. <laughs> I actually, me and a girlfriend, actually, we used to go to a 6am. I went to a 6am meeting for years. It was a daily 6am meeting. Wow. And I had my, one of my girlfriends, I was like, let's wear pajamas. And so we did, nobody cared. We were all nervous. We <laughs> thought we were going to be, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody so cares. Funny so dumb. Yeah. But they don't, they don't care. They care, but they don't care. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, they don't care what you're wearing or anything like that. No. But, um, yeah. So the beginning I was all in, I was mm-hmm. so desperate, desperate to be sober. I was willing to do anything they told me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did have some women, you know, I was 25 years old. I was platinum blonde at the time. I have dark Brown hair now. Um, but, uh, and I was very thin. Everyone thought I was recovering from some kind of, um, speed or uh, no, I was depressed. And when I'm depressed, I stop eating. Mm. And so I showed up super skinny. So, you know, anyway, I was, I was a hot mess, Mm -hmm. um, hot, but a mess nonetheless. And, um, the girls pulled me aside and said, Hey, be really, you're young, you're cute. Be careful of the wolves and sheep's clothing. Mm. you know, there, there are, you know, predators in these meetings and you should go to women's meetings. And I was like, no, thank you. That's gross. (laughs) I was not, I was not a fan of women because I saw women as competition, Mm. right? Because I, I had spent so much time and energy decorating the outside. I was terrified that there was nothing on the inside. Mm -hmm. And now I didn't have anything like alcohol or drugs to mask my ask my feelings. I was like, what are we going to even talk about? Like, right. I, don't know. I didn't have a good relationship with mom. I didn't have any girlfriends left. Mm-hmm. So I was terrified, but I was willing to do what they told me to do. Cause I was desperate to be sober. So, yeah. so you met some good women in the beginning. I did. I did. Mm-hmm. I met this gal, uh, who remembered my name the second time she met me and Impressive. I kept uh, yeah, really. Arlena is not an easy name to remember. So when people mm-hmm. remember my name, I'm always like, Whoa, <laughs> <laughs> you're amazing. <laughs> but this girl remembered my name the second time she met me. And it was this, it, that was the sign I needed. Mm. It was like the sky had parted, like the clouds yeah. had parted and the sun was shining. And I was like, Oh, this is my sponsor. Yeah. And you know how I asked her to sponsor me? I asked her if she would listen to my inventory huh that was like because i i kept hearing that people were doing steps one two and three and relapsing and that ever that that the fourth step was like the scary process and but people were relapsing behind it and i was so scared of relapsing that 
I knew I, I was like, okay, let's just do that. You know, let's do the mm. hard part first. And, um, she looked at me with the most kind and loving eyes. And she said, I would be honored, but we're going to start with step one. <laughs> I was like, okay. And so go. that's what we did. And so she would give me, a, she's like, look, I'm going to give you a homework assignment. First of all, she was like, are you willing to go to any length for your sobriety? And I said, absolutely. I was desperate. So mm-hmm. yes, hundred, a hundred times. Yes. She said, okay, I'm going to give you a homework assignment and schedule a date, you know, a deadline. And uh, we're going to meet to discuss what you wrote. And if your homework is not done, we're not going to meet because that the purpose of our relationship is to do steps. I'm not your therapist. Mm-hmm. I'm not your bank. I'm not a taxi. Right. She had very clear boundaries. Right. And so I was like, oh, I was like scared, but I was like, <laughs> okay, okay. Oh, right. Whatever you say. Um, and so she would give me a homework assignment and we would set a time. I always did my homework like the night before hours before we met. Right. Right. Meeting at four o'clock. I was doing my homework at three. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sounds yeah. about right. <laughs> yeah. We, I worked best under a deadline. Um, but she would always show up and she would always look at me through eyes of compassion. Like I totally get it. I did all that stuff too. And I felt safe in her presence. Mm. And I really believed that that helped me cycle through my stuff faster. And, um, I would call her for advice. One time I called her for advice about my husband, now husband, I was like, I'm thinking about dating this guy. And I was already dating somebody else new and yeah, uh, men were my other addiction. Um, and I'm talking to her and I could hear her breathing and I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm trying not to give you advice. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> like, you need to come to your own conclusions. She's like, yeah. you need to tune into, she's like, you can, you have to learn to trust yourself again. Mm. You know, ask God for help, ask God for a clear sign. Mm. And when in Love doubt, them. don't. And I was like, whoa. And to this day, you know, follow your heart, trust your gut. When in doubt, don't. Those were the, you know, trust God, clean housework with others, the real basic mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. That has, that's what's led me to 28 years, you know, and I'm not saying I'm not batshit on occasion, you know, we can come full circle on things and, but um, man, I'm better than I was. Right. So let's talk about the batshit um, for a moment, if you will. I oh, think yeah. that it- <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, we could probably both uh, reflect back on what it was like in the beginning and think, oof, you know, like, what was I thinking doing this or that? And um, I think it takes, I think it takes a long time, which is one of the things I really appreciate um, that you are doing the work outside of recovery after being recovered, Mm -hmm. because there is a very big difference between going to a program and then doing the work and not, you know, I was, I shared with you before that I, you know, it was five years um, existing in a program. Let's not even call it sober. Um, and I had not done any of the work mm-hmm. and thank goodness. Somebody asked me how long I wanted to stay sick and, and talked about the fact that I was passing on a mess and not the message and that I could kill somebody. Yeah. And that really, you know, as much as I thought, what a jerk, <laughs> like, who do you think you are talking to me like that? I have more time than you. My ego is bigger and I've spoken in more meetings than you. Like, really, like that's, that's crazy, mm-hmm. embarrassing, um, cringy to me today to know that that's what I was like. Yeah. And, but I'm so grateful for those people that were, that loved me enough to tell me the truth, to talk to me about the hard things, to pull me aside and say, well, this is the way, you know, because I'm sure you have met a lot of people inside of the rooms that you wouldn't even want to share the same breathing space with. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You, what came up for me is when you were talking about like, how dare you kind of thing, it's like the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. Oh Yeah. Right. That's a glorious item quote. And it's so interesting because now that is my sign. It's a guidepost for me. It's like, you're on the right path. Follow yeah. this. If it pisses me off, I, that's my sign. You know, the book talks about it's a spiritual axiom. Whenever we're upset, we're also at fault, you know, yeah. and, and we're always sort it's always that turning back inward 
to what is my part or what's going on with me, mm. right? The outside is just a reflection of the inside. And, and so it's important to, you know, to follow that. It's like, what is making angry? Drug and alcohol attorneys specialize in helping families and individuals in crisis due to substance abuse and mental health disorders. Many times an individual either refuses to go into treatment or won't stay in treatment long enough to experience the miracle of recovery. Sometimes the individuals may be homeless, living on the streets and cut off from those that love them. In these situations, the drug and alcohol team can locate the individual, obtain a court order and get them off the street and into life-saving treatment. When a family needs to regain control over medical and treatment decisions and finances, the drug and alcohol team assists them to get emergency relief from the courts. In September of 2022, Drug and Alcohol Attorneys is opening another office in Boston so more families can be helped and more individuals. And man, I had a time, like I had a this sponsor who was just amazing. I had, I had a couple sponsors early in sobriety. And the, and the next one, uh, you know, I would call her and be like, Julie, Bobby did this and Bobby did that. She'd be like, oh, okay. Um, I don't sponsor him. <laughs> right. So, so I don't care about him. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna focus on you. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It's like because I wanted her to agree with me. You know, yes. we all have this need to be seen and heard and understood. But there is a place like we all want to be. I was always seeking validation. And what I learned is that, um, there is a time and place. Sometimes your pain has to be validated. It's like, yes, I can see how you'd feel this way. Let's move to solution. That's Mm. like, how do you think you're, what, what was your, what was the root cause? What was your motive? Like what actually happened? What are you resentful about? What was your motive? What was the fear driving you? What was your behavior? What could you have done different? It was like a self-examination process. And I had the sponsor that was like the sounding board. And I got to tell you, there were things. So seeking external validation also manifested in, um, you know, how it showed up for me, which is super cringy now is gossip. Character yeah. assassination and gossip was a terror. I could not keep a secret to save my life. And, <sighs> and it's funny how we do this thing in recovery where we discuss people who are not present and psychoanalyze them in, in an effort to uh, teach others a lesson or, um, you know, hi- anyway, it's hiding a bad motive mm. behind a good one. And what I learned about myself is that I needed validation that I wasn't wrong or that I wasn't bad. It like, it came back to that core uh, belief of I'm bad. And so whenever I had a conflict in a relationship, I needed to seek a third person to validate me and make them wrong because my identity was so fragile that I couldn't bear the weight of another accusation. Yeah. I didn't bear the weight of another thing I did wrong. And so recovery for me has been a process of turning that locus of control from outside, like to the inside. It's like caring about what I thought about me more than what you think about me mm-hmm. and building that level of self-esteem. I, I teach a self-esteem class. And the premise of the class is that we only allow into our lives what we believe we deserve on a subconscious level. Oh, that's we a see, fun lesson. Well, listen, and we see it in our friends all the time who are in bad relationships. Right. Like they keep, if they keep attracting the same guy with different pants on. Amen, sister. Right. And, and so that is, that is reflective of what we believe we deserve. It's not, why is he a jerk? It's why did you pick him? Mm. Why do you continue to pick him? Why do you continue? Like it's uh, people, you know, respond at the level of our own, you know, self-worth. Right. So that's the outside is a reflection of what's going on on the inside. And if you pick somebody who's abusing you, it's because you believe you deserve it on some subconscious level. Yeah. And that is really hard to hear when you're in that. It is because we want to say that's the problem out there, but whenever you're pointing your finger, you have three fingers pointing back at you. Yeah. And if they are pointing it really hard like that too, and they're talking about religion, run for your life. 
<laughs> politics, religion. Right. Bye-bye. Anybody like this. Yeah. It's very angry. Run. Yeah. No point. No pointing. No pointing. It's not a fun gesture. Mm. I think that it's so valuable what you're talking about. I remember feeling that uh, I definitely t- attracted not only toxic relationships, romantic relationships in my first 10 years of recovery. Sounds about right. Yep. 10. (laughs) In my 10th year of sobriety, my boyfriend had a girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you know, and it was, it was like, why is this happening to me? Ah, happening to you. Yeah. Why is this happening to me? Yeah. And it was at that time that I moved from New York to Tampa Bay and spent two years of my life. And I was lucky enough to meet that person that you have met Yeah, where, um, and it was a, a man, Jimmy Marino, who has since passed. He was an old timer in recovery. And he used to say, Sharon, I don't want to hear about Kevin anymore because <laughs> you are in fact the problem. Did did he give you any context to that though? Because I think that statement alone without context is not useful. Well, I think, no, I don't think he gave me a lot of context, but just as you mentioned before, it hurt, it stung so much that I believed that there was truth to it. So my first reaction was anger and how could you, and you know what he did? He cheated on me and I listed all the reasons. Of course I'm talking about it, but I didn't, it, I appreciate it today. But I don't think that, you know, the delivery was from a man. So Mm -hmm. I take that. Yeah. (laughs) They don't always wrap things up the way we tend to and deliver them in a way where we could actually hear them and download them. Yeah. But it it definitely stuck with me. And then I I spent two years alone trying to understand why I was attracting the wrong people. Yeah. So I mentioned that only because, right, like it takes, it takes a long time to get to that place where you're maybe even willing to admit that you might be the problem. The funny thing is, is we develop such a tolerance for pain. Yes. That we can continue bad behaviors for a very long time because we're Mm. used to it. Right. Right. It feels normal. And then recovery for me was about, you know, it's recovering my whole self, the good parts and the bad, but it was also recovering my feelings Like in the very beginning, I felt like this raw nerve ending and everything that brushed up against me was so painful. It's like I had this soul bruise and any little thing bumped up against me, I felt triggered and it took me a while to regulate. So that's like the beginning of recovery, right? Is you be, it's this overcoming the crisis of addiction and then learning to regulate and then long-term recovery is about really diving deeper to, to sort of getting to the, the core stuff, the trauma Mm -hmm. that's underneath all of that, right? Um, but yeah, that, that initial process is not easy, but it's, you know, the things that we talk about are about self-care, self-love, self-esteem, because as that raises, then the quality of the outside changes. Whenever a woman comes to me with a Kevin, I don't even talk about Kevin. I, I go, I, I said, what's your self-care practice look like? What, how, hmm. how, do you have a picture of yourself as a little girl sitting out that you can send love to every morning? Have you written her a letter lately and apologize for abandoning her? Hmm. Um, do you meditate on feelings of contentment and achievement and joy and and relief. Like, what would that feel like? What does that look like? What does your self future self look like? What do you want to be doing five years from now? And like really start the process of turning inward to give ourselves the love that we were always missing. And at first we don't want to do it. It feels so unsatisfying, right? Like my own love to myself felt very unsatisfying because I didn't yet appreciate who I was. Mm. And so slowly over time, and now I know that there are ways to raise that level faster. Like, you know, I practice hypnosis and a bunch of, you know, I've done all the therapies and, and so now I know, and that's why I'm like trying to get the message of healing out because there's ways to accelerate it. That's the purpose of the master apprentice you know, model is so that the apprentice can accelerate faster and surpass the master in in that Mm -hmm. sort of model. And that's kind of what we do in the rooms and this peer, peer support is that we 
you know, there, we have a hand that reaches up to the sponsor and one that reaches back to the, the newcomer so that we all progress together faster. Yeah. And I think um, we were speaking earlier about how important it is that um, we be that example for somebody new or somebody just coming back and the women that um, are broken little birds when they come in and, and, you know, just remembering how difficult it was and how much you have to overcome when you first decide to put down um, the drugs or the alcohol, both. And, you know, I can only speak for myself is that it took a very long time to even want to address any of the trauma that Mm -hmm. I had been through. I think that um, the solution is great that is offered in recovery because it does offer a guide to to healing. Um, But then I was just all focused on the solution and didn't even want to touch those really, really, really sore spots. And that is what I got outside of the room. So I want Mm -hmm. to talk a little bit about um, you being this recovery coach today, what, what does that look like? When did you start that? And, and, and how has that been Arlena? Well, you know, I've been, I've been working with women for, I would say probably about 20 years. Um, I I'm 28 years sober, but it took me a while and I did sponsor women in the beginning, but I didn't feel, um, like I was in a good place. Like I was too emotionally involved with the girls. I was with the women I was sponsoring. Right. And I didn't have great boundaries. I have really good boundaries now. Um, they're not perfect. Right. Like I get super attached to all my people. I love them, but, um, and I, and I want I have this, this, uh, need to rescue that I need to be careful with, but, Um, so I've been working with women for a long time, but then I, because of my long-term sobriety needing to go deeper, I found ways like hypnosis that really helped me get into the subconscious mind. And that's kind of where I've been for quite a while is Mm -hmm. I have a six phase process that I do with my coaching clients. It's not forever, although some transition to like a biweekly or monthly check-in type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a, I I practice hypnosis over the internet. We do it online. Um, And so we go through building self-esteem. We go through um, age regression to sort of go into the childhood arena to find out where those triggers were installed and give that child, you know, context and perspective and reframe some of the most challenging experience. I had, I had sexual abuse. So when I went through the process myself, it helped me to reframe Mm. some of those experiences so that I wasn't so emotionally charged by them. And then I, I take them through this process of forgiveness of others and then forgiveness of self. Yeah. And there's, and there's typically some, you know, conversations in between the process for addressing things that come up, you know, life happens. And sometimes it's nice to have a person to problem solve with, mm-hmm. you know, you know, like, it's nice to have that friend that you can run something past them and then, you know, get to your own answer somebody that can help you facilitate your own healing. Um, so that's what, that's what the work, the one-on-one work that I do. And then I have a, a self-esteem a, class that I do as a group. Oh, and then you also, <laughs> oh, the book. <laughs> yes. Which is very exciting. I really want to make sure that, um, I say how important I feel like it is that, um, especially women that are doing the work on themselves and immerse themselves with, have immersed themselves with their own healing and their own recovery process, and then provide a space to offer that to others, I think is really, really valuable. And there are so many um, women that are struggling today, not just with alcoholism and addiction, but mental health issues and trauma and depression and anxiety and OCD and love me some hypnosis and and a lot (laughs) of the practices that you um, are offering. So tell me what led you to want to write this book. So I started my podcast about six years ago, and that's when my eyes were really opened to the broader recovery community, to different mm-hmm. modalities of healing. And I was sort of raised with this idea of this way is the only way, which is a very religious notion, actually. 
kind of a fanatical. And um, I became aware that people were recovering in all different kinds of ways. And I was like, what are all these ways? It made me really uncomfortable at first. Cause for a lot of people uh, in 12 step, it's a life or death situation. These are people who are Mm -hmm. very, you know, it's life or death. There's just no way of softening that, but there's a lot of people who are not, it's not life or death for them. Right. Necessarily. I mean, it could be there, but, um, I started hearing all this backlash about the 12 steps. And mostly what I was hearing were ideas that were rooted in a misperception. And so I was like, I want to take all the barriers to entry and just call them out. Let's just talk about it. Let's call out the barriers to entry and let me give you some context and perspective so that you can move past those Mm. to receive the benefit that the process of the 12 steps offer. It's so I'm just saying that the 12 steps are a worthy endeavor. It's a worthy endeavor. It's a design for living. It's a, it was a, it was like an eye opening process that, I mean, it completely transformed my life. Right. completely. Mm-hmm. Right. But I didn't know that there's a difference between the program and meetings. They're two different things. The world, right. world apart, worlds apart, right. The, the, the program is the steps and there's a way to find a sponsor. There's and and the a couple of barriers that are really common, the God issue, people go, Oh, it's a religious program. I'm not doing that. It is not a religious program. There's, no, we wouldn't a, be there girl. I'm telling you, I had so much 28 years trauma. later, I wouldn't go. <laughs> I had so much religious trauma that the idea right. I was like, if that's what it is, I don't want it. And they were like, no, no, that's not what it is. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Pass that hurdle. Uh, alcoholic. I'm like, I don't want to use this shame label. They're like, oh, actually it's a badge of honor. It means that you've confronted, you've survived something that kills. I think it's like 3 million Americans a year. I mean, it's something crazy. The statistics are just astronomical. There's a bunch of people dying from alcohol. Makes me crazy. Um, Yeah. So the the word alcoholic, oh, it's not in the DSM-5. Guess what? The DSM-5 isn't perfect. It's also largely driven by uh, insurance providers writing. (laughs) It's problematic. Let's just say that. Yeah. Um, So the word alcoholic and then turning my will and my life over to the care of higher power guess what? Alcohol is a power that you, greater than you, that you, you've been turning your life over to the, the care of that. Right? right. So what exactly are you worried about? And, and I'm being a little bit snarky, but there's a very compassionate and empathic way to sort of dissolve that barrier as well. And, you know, the uh, making amends that that's something that really terrifies people. But the, I just want people to know that you don't, have to make amends to everybody. There is a clause that says, except when to do so would injure them or other. So we're not unburdening ourselves at another person's expense, right? If, if making an amends is going to uh, affect your family, impact your family in a negative way or cause harm to others, that's not appropriate. We need to find other ways to, of making amends. And that's why a sponsor is so important because they help you sift through um, letting go of some of the things that you thought, you know what it is, it's relying on somebody else's interpretation. Who's actually had experience with it. There's Mm -hmm. this idea that people look at the steps and they rely on their own interpretation as to what it means. But we have to recognize that when we're at the beginning, we have no experience, right? Our interpretation's not valid. And that's so offensive to hear, but it's the truth. It's one of those things that'll make you mad. It's like, you can't, if you have no experience in something, you can't rely on your own interpretation. You have to talk to someone who's had the experience already. So that's Amy. That's why I wrote the book because I was like, can we just clear up some of these misconceptions? And if after everything I say, you still don't want to do the steps, I can give you like a dozen other modalities of healing. Right. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be this way. That's for sure. I know know people who got sober through yoga or exercise or something. Totally. Wish that happened to me. We know know some influencers that have gotten sober through Instagram. Oh, anyway, don't even take me down that rabbit hole. <laughs> I, get I like so to upset you, Arlena. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going um, in the book too. <laughs> well, you know, there, uh, there are many ways. I mean, I just interviewed somebody that offers music for healing. There's so many different ways yeah, um, yeah. and it's so beautiful. And there's yeah. 
we just know for ourselves that this this has worked and it has worked for like uh like a lot of people and for over 80 years um so millions of people yeah. right so that's important um Can I, I remember just say it's not the only thing I'm doing it was never well, the only thing I did it would be like you know okay you have depression take this medication and that's it it, it's the same thing. You you can't go to a 12-step recovery program and expect that to be the end all. It's actually not. You know, I submitted actually um, uh, a, a story for the new edition. Of uh-huh. course. Yeah. I, well, I did it on the day it was due. So <laughs> they got a flood of stories that last day. I bet they did. You know what? That's funny. I bet they did. Us damn sure. procrastinating yeah, alcoholics. <laughs> but I, I called it um, the 12 steps like save my life, but it didn't cure my depression. Right. You know, so there are so many things that we have to do in addition, you know, I, and I know you talk about this a lot too, you know, exercise is huge for me. Meditation Mm -hmm. is huge for me. Um, Nature is huge for me, all of that stuff. And, and all of the books, we probably have the same books on audible. Um, (laughs) But I remember reading Russell Brand's interpretation, well, not interpretation, but he talked about the 12 steps in his book and it pissed again, anything that pisses me off. I need, I really need to dive into a little bit more. And I did. And why was it upsetting me? Well, it was upsetting me because I thought that I thought originally that he was stealing, you know, the work that Ah. Bill Wilson had done, but it wasn't at all, you know, that was just my, whatever, just stupidity, let's just call it. And (laughs) I, then I was like, yeah, because you know what, this is, this will help so many people that aren't even alcoholics and drug addicts. Like who yeah. didn't need some type of uh, recovery design for living through the pandemic? Oh my gosh. Can I just tell you that I have heard the statement over and over and over and over again. Oh my, when somebody discovers the steps, they go, oh my gosh, we should be teaching this in schools. I hear, I've, I've heard it so many times. Teaching kids how to manage their emotions, how to practice self-examination in a practical, gentle, and loving, you know, I joke around that the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. You know, honesty without compassion is cruelty. Mm. It's cruelty. And, And I think that's why we need to temper the truth with compassion. Because it, it, you know, we are in denial because we're wounded and we need to feel safe. Yeah. Right. And I have found that when I say sometimes that I, I make people cry for a living. Right. But what that means is that I try to create an environment that's so safe that the denial melts away and the Mm -hmm. truth is revealed. And when that happens, it comes out in the form of tears. They release Mm -hmm. that pain in the form of tears and it's a cleansing good thing. And whenever that happens, I go, good. Oh, good. (laughs) Right. And it's such an honor that someone feels safe enough in my presence that they're able to, you know, unburden themselves of a fear that's false evidence appearing real. Right. And women, when you see that, that person starting to cry in the room, please don't touch them and don't don't, give them a tissue. Don't give them a fucking tissue. They haven't cried. Did you read my article? No, but I have did you write, write about this that? This is so big for me. Yeah. So don't big. break somebody's process. Right. I mean, you know how long it took me to be okay with crying in front of somebody else. And then I remember the first time I did it and everybody from the room, you know, with the Kleenex and the hands and the rubbing, don't touch me because now I'm going to stop, I stop right in my tracks. And, and I'm not going to feel that anymore because you're almost saying like, you, what about all the women that say, um, I'm sorry. I'm crying. I know. Isn't that sad? We apologize. We apologize. It's because it's the shame. Yeah. You know, we, we don't know the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is I did something wrong and and shame is I am wrong. Yeah. Sorry. I'm feeling everybody. I know. Isn't that sad? Sorry. I'm a human. I'll, I'll stop. Yeah. I'm going to stop. We're we're taught not to have any feelings. Right. And yeah. 
And it's, I was just telling, talking to somebody about uh, the, my theory about why nice guys finish last. And it's because we are taught from very, from we're little girls. He's standing in the supermarket with mom and all the magazine racks. It's like 10 ways to make him happy, thinner thighs, how to look different, be different. You need to be, you're not all these messages. You're not okay. The way you are. Mm -hmm. And so we strive to be different and it is really, it fosters a sense of of self-hatred, right? And totally. finally the nice guy comes along and we're like, ew. <laughs> we're like, what is, and I think the subconscious thoughts, what's wrong with you mm. that you would be attracted to me? Mm -hmm. Like you must not be good enough. Mm. There must be something wrong with you. And, and we're it's a, a confrontation of real intimacy in to me, you see, and where it's, yeah, it's terrifying. I remember the first time I felt that experience with my husband and he was such a safe place. And he's like, I see you. And I was like, turn the lights off. All right. It's terrifying. But, uh, I, you know, it was one of those things where sometimes people love you until you can love yourself. Totally. And ladies, it's important if you're listening to know that uh, Arlena and I have both married nice people. Oh my gosh. He's the nicest guy. I don't know. I think mine is like Mr. Rogers. Really? Does he have a naughty side? I can't imagine he doesn't. <laughs> uh, not, not really. No, he's got no kink. He's got. <laughs> no, he's. <TMI>? <laughs> No, he's really like, um, but it just, it's a proof of like, I never wanted to be with that nice guy. All the things like, we're just resonating right. so much. Right. I never wanted that. I never attracted that. I always attracted yeah. somebody with an alias. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. Now I, and I, and I get that. And I'm so grateful that there is a part of me that want, like we, I joke around people like, how'd you guys stay together for so long? And I was like, well, we have the same goal, which is my happiness. So okay. <laughs> love it. Well, we do recover. There's proof right yes. here. Everybody that is watching and listening, we do recover. We do want to attract people that actually want us to be happy. It's so nice. Yeah. So yeah. nice. So stick around. Yeah. Um, I want to thank you for not only being here today, but also for putting in the work to help those that are still struggling and still suffering and showing people that we do recover and showing people that there is hope um, and that we could be all of the things at one point in our life. And that story does not have to define us. Um, and all of the information of how to get more information about Arlena and her wonderful programs and her new book that's coming out will be in the show notes. So thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Yay, Yay us. Remember, drug and alcohol attorneys specialize in helping families and individuals in crisis due to substance abuse and mental health disorders. Reach out today. 877-777-777.